0: In late June of 1916, Oswald Boca found himself on a train racing away from the war on the Western Front. Deemed as too important to lose after the death of Max Immelman, Boca was left with no battle to wage. Instead, he turned his energies into distilling the lessons learned from nearly two years of fighting. This distillation led to the Dicta Boca, the first codified set of air-to-air tactics. Combined with daily flight briefs and debriefs, Boca unknowingly set the standard that all Air Forces use more than 100 years later. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And we're two average fighter pilots. So, luckily, this podcast isn't about us, it's about the extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. All right, guys, welcome back to Fight History. This week, we're covering not the man, Oswald Boca, but his contributions to the fighter
1: community. But before we get into that, Mr. Chow, how was your weekend? Uh, it was really nice. I went to uh, a friend of mine's son's first birthday party. It was a blast.
0: Yeah, I've, I'm so dedicated to the podcast that about 21 months ago, I made sure to have unprotected sex so that I could have my first son born on Veterans Day 1111 11, in honor of World War One ending and in honor of the podcast little Oswald Burka turned one <laughs> over the weekend
1: really and, happy that you did not name him Oswald
0: yeah Oswald that's a you don't find that name around quite as much uh, anymore but it was a fun little uh, Ozzy is a cool name though Ozzy yeah I mean if he's going to be a rock star it's even better yeah I don't judging from my musical ability that I'm handing down or lack thereof, that's probably not the route that he's going. But uh, my son was born on Veterans Day. We're not quite there yet in our study of World War One. But it was a fun little weekend, Mr. Chow. A nice little gift for my son. I forget which one it was now. I ate too much uh, cake as always, so we're gonna finish that off after the podcast. But. Was, like I said, it was the bread maker that you're now going to re gift. That's right. I got to get a label maker that I just re to the next person. But um, with that being said, this is an interesting week. It's a different kind of week for us on the podcast because we're not studying the person. Like I said, we're studying his contributions to the fighter community because I think that they are sort of just like very fundamental. And it's how a fighter squadron operates today. That standard was set by Oswald Bolka when he got back from his trip east in 1916. And so to kind of paint the picture, though, of what a fighter squadron looks like today, I think it's worth talking about what it's like to be selected and then kind of go through a pipeline and then what it is like when you get back. So when were you selected to be a pilot, Mr. Chow?
1: Uh, I interviewed in February of 2014. And so I started pilot training then in January of 2015. And then July of 2017 is when I actually got back to the squadron, having been through all the training.
0: Yeah. So if I do the math right on that, I mean, it's like by the time you get selected until you leave for training, it's almost a year. And then once you start training, it's about two and a half years or so
1: before you get back, right? Yeah. And we're and we're only talking about the guard here. This is uh, yeah. This a is little... a
0: little special. We're both in the guard, but still, without that year break, the year break is kind of what the the guard is waiting for slots for training. Right. But everyone requires about two and a half years of training just to get back to a squadron as a wingman, right? And typically during that training, if you're trying to go for a fighter spot, you have to finish, everyone has a different standard, but at least top half of your class to continue on a fighter track. And then once you're back, you're just the FNG. I'll let you fill in some of the blanks, but you're the new guy. The friendly new guy. The friendly new guy in the squadron. And your job is to basically make popcorn, sweep the floors, be in position and formation, be on freak when we're flying, and kind of just study, right? That, and there's a saying, it's not quite as applicable anymore as it used to be, but like, you're just talking on the radios, you're just letting me know if I'm on fire, basically. Um, and so we're just contrasting that, Chow, last time you brought up, like, back for you know Oswal Bolka Squadron, Yasta too. those guys were getting pilots three months in I remember three months in I could barely take off and land Um, I don't know how you were doing three months in but that's where I was at Um, so anyways just to contrast the timelines there modern day pilots have a whole lot more time and when you're back uh, as a wingman in the squadron um, you don't have to brief anybody anything because you don't know anything you're getting everything briefed to you just like Uh, When Bolka set up Yasta 2 with Rick Tofen and these other guys, he actually held them on the ground initially. Uh, He didn't really have the machines for them to fly anyways. But he just sit down and he would brief them. And before every flight today, we have flight briefs. They usually start a couple hours before the flight. And you have to be very, very punctual. It is drilled into your skull during pilot training. You will not be late we have written standards about being in the squadron 15 minutes prior being in your seat one minute prior i used to have nightmares about being late when i had early briefs like i didn't sleep well because yeah, i was
1: scared of missing the brief when i was a new wingman i would get to the to the squadron at about like i i'd done the math i needed to get there with enough time that i could make two batches of popcorn and then get the weather in the notums and then take a dump <laughs> Most important part. That is the most all, important part. All before the brief. And so I remember we had a lot of briefs that were like 6.50 or 7.20 in the morning, which I'm sure a lot of the active duty guys listening to this are like, that's a joke. You know, 4.30 briefs and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, six fifty, seven twenty is pretty early for the guard. Uh, and I remember I was still having to get to work by like five twenty, five thirty. Uh, because we had this popcorn machine that took like 40 minutes per batch. And if I only made one batch, then it was, was going to be out by the time I landed yeah. and I was, there was going to be hell to pay.
0: And there was probably a pretty good chance the popcorn machine would light on fire. If you weren't watching it very closely, that's
1: that is, happened several times. That is accurate. It used uh, a, a piece of 550 cord to keep the bucket in the right spot so that it wouldn't burn.
0: Yeah. Uh, that actually reminds me of a funny story. Uh, we were in Romania. Mr. Chow was there. Uh, 2018 or so, we were flying with the Remandian Air Force, and this is when I was a brand-new wingman in the squadron. And so there was another brand-new wingman, call sign Risky now, uh, and we were both bing and bong at the time, FNG 1 and 2. And we were doing a sortie. I was supposed to be red air. He was blue air. So he was a good guy. I was a bad guy. And I remember getting ready for the brief, and it was kind of an odd time. It was like 8.20 for the brief. And I see Risky head to the porta potty taking care of the most important thing, you know, before you brief. But he thought the sortie was at 8.30. So when we start the brief at 8.20, I'm looking around. He's not there. And uh, he walked in about eight minutes late to the brief. And you know when you walk into a room and you're like, oh, I shouldn't be in here. Like he went to the long classroom or something in high school. He had that initial look on his face. And then he realized with like abject horror that it was actually his brief that he was interrupting. And they pulled him out of blue air immediately. I ended up going to blue air. They like almost didn't let him fly. And I still remember the look of horror on his face (laughs) as he walked in eight minutes late to a brief. So the point is, you know, like in a modern fighter squadron, you uh, you always start your flights with a brief and, you know, you never want to be late. Um, I still don't think I mean, knock on wood, I don't think I've been late and I've been flying for a while now. Started flying in 2015. So I'll probably miss my next brief because I said that. But that's how important it is. And um, my wife, on a side note, she loves the fact that I'm always pushing for us to be on time when she's getting ready. I'm sure. This is one thing that doesn't transfer quite as well to your personal life, uh, always trying to be on time. But what do you brief is sort of the next question, right? And when you're a new wingman in the squadron, you're always studying, and what you're studying is what we call a 3-1, but it's your book on tactics, okay? Our 3-1 is several hundred pages long, and it changes about every 12 hours, (laughs) That's an exaggeration, but it does change every year, so you have to kind of keep up with the changes. So once you've read it through once, it doesn't mean like you're done. And connecting this back to World War One and Asma Polka, the Dicta Polka is essentially your first book of tactics. It's only eight dictas long, but it is that first attempt of someone trying to codify all the rules they've learned so far in combat, and so kind of connecting the brief and the debrief, or excuse me, the the brief and the studying of the brief and the book of tactics. The brief is going to include kind of safety rules and then the tactical portion. And when you start going through upgrades, so you're a wingman when you get back, basically you just fly in formation. And then eventually you're going to have to start leading other people. That's when you start having to brief other individuals. You have to practice the brief. There's sort of a running joke now that, the only original brief that was ever invented was Oswald Bolkus and everyone's been copying it and, like, crossing off Oswald Bolkus and someone put, you know, Rick Tofen, and then that got crossed out and put Rick and, Backer, and then so on and so forth until Pil- fighter Pilots today. But he was that first guy to write down, hey, this is what we should be briefing everybody, and that was one of his huge comp- contributions. And then before we get into the bulk, the dicta Bulka, the other thing he did was the intel briefs. So... In a modern fighter squadron, intel always starts the brief with like current threats or hey, this is what a you know adversary fighter looks like and some of their capabilities. They've got this antenna here, and that's how you can tell it's this version versus that version. I'm not gonna lie; I'm not great at paying attention during those. I'm usually finishing my coffee or like coming from my radar game plan.
1: Yeah, I you know I, I'm gonna stop you there for a second. Um, I think that as wingman, so as a you know, barely qualified F-15, brand new F-15 pilot, or probably in, in any fighter, I think in general, we're, we're all probably pretty bad at listening to not just the intel portion of the brief, but I think most of the brief, right? Because I remember that feeling as a wingman that no matter what sortie you were going out, to, what, no matter what mission you were going out to fly, you would go into the brief and you would try to listen intently for the things that were applicable to you. And there was one thing that was always applicable to you, and that was, which side do you rejoin to <laughs> after you take off? You had to remember that. Because if you screwed that up, then it was going to be very evident if you rejoined to the wrong side. He was going to look out of his aircraft and... Yeah. Be Other in- side, idiot. Exactly. Be in formation, right? And uh, on free. And on free. Uh, and so you didn't... you ended up kind of like... Your eyes would maybe glaze over a little bit, and maybe wouldn't hear all the words or probably at least process all the words from the rest of the brief. These, I don't know about you.
0: These briefs are 60 minutes. Usually if you're doing an upgrade, it's a full 60 minutes plus five minus zero. That's the standard. Um, and right now, Mr. Chow and I are instructor, our instructors. So we're typically the ones giving the brief and it is kind of a, I've been trying to make it more interesting because especially if everyone's saying the same thing over and over again, you do just glaze. I, right. my eyes glaze over and I'm like, all right, cool. I'll, Probably mess this up. And we'll talk Modern about the pulled just shy of the wing rock. Yeah, exactly. There's like these catchphrases simultaneously at the same time that we say that make no sense sometimes, but we all say them at the same, you know, in the same exact way. And so it is, it is a struggle to make them interesting. Um, I don't know if Bolka had any tricks for that. He didn't breathe for too long before, unfortunately, he was uh, killed by breaking the dick to Bolka or one of his uh, formation members did, but. Um, yeah, that's kind of what the brief encompasses today. It's a shame we don't listen to Intel more because it's literally, they spend all day studying, coming up with a two-minute brief for us, and then we, like, our eyes glaze over half the time and don't get it. But they're great. We have a great Intel section here. But uh, anyways, getting back down to what's actually in the dictabolka, Okay, so this is the first set of air-to-air tactics that someone ever wrote down. Rule one, that he... Uh, came up with is try to secure advantages before attacking if possible keep the sun behind you and although the sun thing is not quite as applicable as it was back in 1916 it is still applicable if you're in a dogfight fight and the bandit goes into the sun you can never tell like what's happening people always call blind sun so you call blind if you can't see the other guy and then people add sun to kind of throw out like it's not my fault he's in the sun <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing a good job um, uh, but the sun thing, you know, it's more applicable in like your tight in dogfights, what we call BFM. The secure advantages before attacking though, is actually fundamental to what we do in long range stuff. So the mission objective for our tactical intercepts, which are long range intercepts is intercept to a position of advantage, which is exactly what he's saying. Uh, we call it intercept to a POA for short. So position of advantage, we just call it a POA and Modern day, it's very dynamic, and it's something where we're talking about not just a 1v1. We're talking about my four-ship probably against four to six uh, red air. Well, it's what it used to be. Now with the uh, F-15 availability, it's usually you know one red air or whatever. However uh, many red air we can get out there. But we're trying to see, like, is my four-ship in a position where I can kill them and they can't kill me, basically, is what we're asking. But it's very, very dynamic. It's on geometry, altitude weapon status, fuel status, all those kinds of things. So,
1: it's interesting too though, he is in in the Dictabulka here he's trying, he's saying try to secure the advantages before attacking if possible. Yeah, And I would equate that more to the way that we prep for a fight, so we try to get up into the kind of the mid 30s, we get high and fast because the higher and faster you are, the farther you can sling a missile, right? Yeah. Um,
0: and, and I th- that's a good point. He's actually saying before you attack. And what they used to do, and I've, I've got this more from uh, Leno Hawker's book actually, who we're going to be covering next, um, when like a British reconnaissance flight would cross the front lines and they would go into Germany, or at least the German held uh, area of France, the Fokkers just wouldn't just go straight and attack. They would spiral up so they could get an altitude advantage. and they would do so in between the front lines and where that reconnaissance flight was. So when that reconnaissance flight has to eventually turn around, they have to fly through the Fockers in order to do that. And then as they were doing that, if he could maneuver, depending on the time of day, his flight into the sun, so that they would dive out of the sun while these guys are trying to return, that's more or less what he was getting at. Applying it to today, yeah, I think you're right. We wanna put ourselves in a position like if we're defending an asset, we're in front of the asset, we're high. And then the intercept to position of advantage thing I think it's just taking that next step further of we always want to strive to be in a position of advantage. And that's kind of the one thing people don't talk about when they... We always have to grade ourselves on these like mission objectives. And sometimes you'll find yourself from sure like dumb luck in a good spot and go, yeah, I nailed it, right? But really, you're striving to be in a position of advantage at every step of the intercept. And if you ever mess it up,
1: then that's what you want to like focus on. Yeah, and then you're trying to dig yourself out of that. Yeah.
0: But... Yeah, and for, for that reason, um, there's so many, like, different ways to measure it. I, I usually say that it's a lot like porn. I know it when I see it, right, which is the actual Supreme Court's definition of pornography. Um, because it is just so, like, it's hard to put in one um, sentence of, like, what defines a position of advantage.
1: But I think pretty similar to today. I mean, they were, they were corkscrewing up for the same reasons, kind of, that we are, and that's to maximize the energy on the jet, right? And you know you, you can do something with that energy. What they were doing with that energy was executing these high-speed diving gun attacks, right? What we're doing with the energy is we are kind of pre-accelerating our missiles so that they're already above the speed of sound and up at 45,000 feet before they even come off our jet. Uh, right. And now they can go a lot farther.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we're kind of, it, it is all about energy, I guess. Energy and position. That's the other thing. Yeah, We're putting ourselves in a position where these enemy w- wants to attack something and we want to prevent that from happening, or we're kicking the door down in an offensive scenario, but we want to put ourselves in the best location, you know, depending on, like, a surface-to-air threat and, like, where we expect the bandits to come from. So, anyways, that's that's rule one, which was, again, just to highlight, try to secure advantages before attacking and then keep the sun behind you if possible. Rule two was always carry through an attack when you have started it and this one again is still very applicable um for us it might even be more applicable than it was for him because if you get into like a within visual range with a bandit nowadays they probably have a missile that's long enough with a long long enough range where you can't realistically run away from him he can shoot you down with a missile so once you get within a certain range depending on upon the threat you're probably we call it buying the merge you have to go to the merge and either you're killing him or he's killing you probably.
1: Yeah, at at a certain range, you know, if you're out farther away, maybe if you continue towards your opponent and he shoots a missile at you, that missile hits you. But if you make the decision to turn around at that point, you might, what we call, kinematically defeat his missile. So his missile doesn't have enough thrust to make it to where you are if you turn around and fly the other direction. Mm -hmm. But after a certain point, once you get in closer than... A given range, and it's different for every threat missile and different altitudes and all that kind of stuff. Then now you've you've bought the merch, like you said.
0: Yep. And for them, it's kind of interesting that he he pointed that out. Of always carry through an attack before uh, when you have started it. There are plenty of cases where they don't do this, but you have to be if you gave yourself the advantage beforehand. You know, you dive in. You're an iron decker. You dive in on an attack. You could potentially outrun the enemy because you had all that speed. But in doing so, you are letting them get on your six o'clock. So it was dangerous, right? If I shoot at you, but then I'm flying past you, you can just then get into what we would call the control zone. And if you're just as fast as me, I'm now on the defensive and you're on the offensive.
1: I think there's also something to be said about the fact that um, if you're starting an attack, you know, if you you think about, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, how they they would corkscrew up, you're never in a better position to start the attack Than you are for that initial attack when you're as high as you're ever going to be in the fight, and now you're diving in. If you're not going to, if you if you kind of give up on the attack before you even get to them, and you reset your position, now one you may have lost the element of surprise, and you're probably not as high anymore. So you've lost the ability to to kind of execute there. And I think back to a concept that we talked a lot about when I was in the Marine Corps on the ground side was that a a simple plan executed very well and very violently usually works out much better than a much more complicated plan that's executed poorly.
0: Yeah, actually, I'm more or less live and die by that. I love that mindset, and I always try to bring that in. When we do like more complicated flights, for example, a defensive counter air where I'm defending something, I like to come up with very few decision points. It's like binary. If the enemy does this, I do this. And I try to like I think really strongly about them when I come up with my criteria. But I want to come up with like things that I can execute very sharply, very quickly, and I can keep them all in my head. There are times when people come up with thirty things, thirty contracts they want you to adhere
1: to, and nobody's ever going to remember. And no all one this. ever remembers them. Yeah.
0: And it's because it, you're getting that in the brief right before you fly. Hey, I want you to do this, 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 this. While you're flying an airplane, it can be very difficult to remember. What was I supposed to do yeah. if the bandit was in? Tell you what, I'm going to re- I'm going to rejoin to the left side, and then I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Exactly, which is why it's really just your your flight lead's intent is the most important thing, is getting, like, does you want me to be really aggressive today or did not that aggressive? Do I shoot everyone twice, you know, or do I, like, hold on to my missiles or whatever? Um, So, yeah, that's an interesting way of of looking at that, that number two, um, which was always carry through an attack once you started it. Number three, fire only at close range and only when your opponent is properly in your sights. I have to say I'm very guilty at firing... (laughs) a little bit too long in BFM engagements. It's very easy. We we talk about how then the fangs come out, which is like, you're in a fight, like you're ready to, to attack. And if you're at too far of a range for the gun attack, but it looks pretty, it's very, very tempting to go for the gun attack outside of range. And then it almost never works because you're looking at someone nowadays, about a half mile away from you. And it's, you can imagine the difficulty of shooting an airplane a half mile away. You're just going hundred miles an
1: hour, hundreds of miles an hour. Um, and you're talking about a gun attack here. I think you can apply this dicta to a missile attack as well. I think you can, can see the, the this idea of close range as a tail DMC. And what I'm talking about here, a tail DMC is dynamic maneuvering cue. It is basically, uh, we have the ability in our jet with our radar to be able to see, okay, how, how, how far could the bandit that I'm shooting turn his jet and run the other direction or run sideways? And how how far could he turn before it defeats my missile? And there's a point at which when you get close enough or once you are fast and high enough that there's really no escape from your missile. And that's a tail DMC.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It could apply to missiles as well. Um, Volka, he had this famous quote that he would only fire when he saw the straps of the enemy's helmet. And if he returned with a black chin, as they called it, because there was like soot that came out of the gun right in front of him, everyone knew that he had, you know, gotten another kill kind of buttered his chin there, buttered his chin. So, um, yeah, that one definitely still applies to today and it applies in more ways than one. Like you said, we won't probably get too much. The missile stuff can get very confusing very quickly, but, yeah, big picture is if you're closer to someone else and you shoot the missile, it's probably better than if you're shooting it farther away.
1: And these guys, I mean, they were looking... I, I mean, they were maybe conserving their bullets, but they were also... Their jams were very common, so it made sense for them to wait until they knew they could hit their opponent before they actually pulled the trigger. So in case they have a, a jam that it's not... They, they, maybe they've still shot down their opponent. Whereas yeah. if they started shooting sooner there's a better chance that something's going to happen. Either they're going to run out of ammo or they're going to have a jam and it's not going to happen. Yeah, and
0: like you said, element of surprise was big. If, yep. they were, if they had managed to then, you know, get this attack high out of the sun and then you're shooting half a mile away and the bullets then tell the person, like, oh, I need to turn into him, then you've ruined everything because you shot too early. Never um, come too early in that sense. Um, so you always want to—number four here is always keep your eye on your opponent— and never let yourself be deceived by ruses. And we have a saying uh, in dog fighting, which is, lose sight, lose the fight. And it's very it's very true. Again, in in sort of a dog fight, the number one thing you're trying to do is stay tally with the bandit, which can be very difficult if he's behind you. So you can imagine flying a fighter jet. We're actually turning our entire hips like around to try and maintain tally. And You're doing all sorts of things that are very bad for your back and neck under G to be doing to maintain it. Because if not, you might as well just start jinking. The guy's probably gunning you if you can't see him.
1: Yeah, I think most of the time in a fight when I have called blind and I'm the defender, so I'm the guy out front with an offender behind me somewhere and I lose track of him, when he describes his position to me of where he is, he says, check Wes, which basically means that he is in a position to employ weapons on me. So that's where I should be looking.
0: Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is actually the second part, which is never let yourself be deceived by ruses. Which, if we think in like long range intercepts, a lot of times there'll be like one guy out in front, one bad guy out in front, kind of going, Look at me. You know what I mean? He'll event, he'll like almost always turn around, and then there's this wave of red air that you haven't looked at because you were focusing on this one dude out in front that you now have to deal with as they pass, you know what I mean? And now that wave that was in the back is now a huge problem. So there are long range ruses and sort of game plans that you could expect to see that you always have to be aware of like where's this threat developing? Yeah, that guy out front probably is the threat initially, but if there's all this gaggle behind him, I can't lose sight of that.
1: Yeah, and maybe you decide, hey, I I probably need to respect that threat out front. I probably need to get a missile going downrange toward this guy. But you're, you're kind of keeping a lobster eye on what's coming after that.
0: Right. Um, Ideally.
1: And, I, I mean, I say that. I don't actually do that.
0: No, I, normally we just sled into those missions.
1: That's right, yeah. Um, but that's why we have debrief. We'll get to that later. Yeah, And that's why we're average fighter pilots and not extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: why no one's doing a podcast about us. That's right. Um, and that was number four. Always keep your eye on your opponent. No, never let yourself be deceived by ruses. Um, I, I want to bring back ruses. That's another... Scourge and ruses. And, bring and those triumphs. Home. And triumphs. I'm getting that from the British Bake Off, though, not necessarily from this. All right. Um, in any form of attack... This is number five. In any form of attack, it is essential to assail your op- your enemy from behind. You're somewhat of an expert in this, Mr. Chow. Um,
1: <laughs> maybe I'll let you take the lead on that one. Uh, Sure. All right. So, uh, in modern-day fighters, uh, we don't have rear-firing fi- rear weapons in general. Um, so it is important to put yourself in a position where you can threaten them, uh, and usually that is behind them. And that kind of started, we talked about the Fokker-Eindecker as being the first real fighter jet. It's a gun platform, right? It has a forward-firing gun that fires through the propeller, and it the gun points wherever the air, aircraft points. Um, and that's kind of how things are still today in most cases. Um, so if you put yourself in a position, which we, we call the control zone, which is an area uh, behind another fighter, um, and generally uh, generally at their 6 o'clock, not too close, not too far away, not too many angles, um, then you kind of are putting them into an arm bar. And what I mean by that is it's like a, a controlling move where they don't really have any options. They, if they try to do something, if they try to, to put a move on you and try to maneuver away, then you're able to follow that move so you're not uh, so close that you can't react in time. Uh, but you're close enough that you can very uh, frequently threaten them with the weapons from your airplane. So they are constantly having to—the defender is constantly having to react in some way.
0: Yeah, and I think, like, fundamentally, if you guys are both pointing at each other, then you can kill each other. If you get behind the bandit, there's really no way for him to kill you, but you can kill him, which is, like, what we're trying—we're talking about position of advantage. That's a huge position of advantage. I can kill you. You can't kill me. And that's where I want to—that's where I want to be in a fight. You did remind me of something there when you said armbar. I was thinking about this the other day. It's kind of funny. So, I I do like a little bit of jujitsu. I'm just not good at it. You know, Um, we're both in the military, but we haven't seen combat. You're balding, but like not in a cool way. You know what I mean? Just sort of like. (laughs) Is there a cool way to bald? Well, if like you shave just all at once. I don't think that's balding. That's that's a choice. That's that's a a choice. Yeah. So like, balding combat, but no. Sorry, like we're in the military, but no combat. I'm bad at jujitsu. Like we're a, a, like the light version, we're like the at-home version of Jocko Willick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's a badass Navy SEAL. Yeah. Combat. Like, a, like he's a, bald, but in a cool way. If we were I to mean. take
1: away all of his cool experiences and then like not work out for five years straight, and then
0: divide it between two guys. Yeah. Um. That's us. That's what we offer the podcasting community. Jocko Willick, light, but in an air-to-air kind of way. Um. Was that a good segue? No. Okay, but that's fine. We'll go to the next one. Uh, which is number six, if your opponent dives on you, do not try to evade his onslaught, but fly to meet it. And there is something we call the Syrian lead turn. And I'm actually hazy on exactly what conflict it was in, but there was a Syrian fighter, I guess it was a Syrian war, if you just call it that, um, who got in an air-to-air engagement, and he like tried to fly away from the individual that he was
1: in this engagement yeah, I'm, with. I'm guessing this is... From like seven day war or something with with Israel is my. Yeah, I don't know exactly when, but it's called,
0: it's been called a Syrian lead turn for a while, but it's exactly the opposite of what Bolka is describing for you to do. Right. So basically if someone's attacking you, you always turn into the attack because that means that you probably pass head on and somewhat neutral. If someone's attacking you, you, try to get away by turning away. You just gave them the control zone we just talked about. And famously, this uh, Syrian pilot did that. He got shot down immediately after that happened. Uh, it's called the Syrian lead turn today, but it's still fundamental in any sort of engagement. The typical answer is to turn into the threat, become threatening to them. Right? You're the best way to survive is by killing the other guy, and you can't do that if you're running away from him.
1: Yeah, I think it's not. It's not just becoming a threat to him. It's also you are creating angular problems by putting your lift vector on the bandit and pulling. And I think somebody recently told me that that's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you are not sure what to do in a dogfight, then just rotate your jet so that your lift vector... And what I mean by your lift vector is kind of like the, the plane that is running vertically through your jet. Uh, yeah, it's, the, it's a line perpendicular to your wings. Yes. Going up. Yep. So, like,
0: as... It, you would turn until your wings are perpendicular, basically, to that airplane. And just pull directly toward it Pull him. directly into that guy. Yeah. And that's the closest way to, like, reduce range, which he probably needs for some sort of an attack, and then create an angular problem for him so that you're showing him a whole lot of jet and you're flying into him, which makes it hard to gun somebody.
1: Yeah, and basically, yeah, you're trying to de- deny him the ability to, one, employ weapons against you, and then, two... You don't want him in your control zone. So yeah. you don't want him putting you in an arm bar where then he's going to be able to dictate what you're doing and employ weapons against you from there.
0: What's funny is both the British and the Germans when they were writing about like the control zone essentially, which there wasn't a term for it yet, they would they wrote it as um saying that like he was sitting on my neck. So yeah. I, I sat on his neck and it, you know, he couldn't shake me off, type of deal, which is kind of a fun way of It's looking hard
1: at it. not to think of it in terms of like wrestling wrestling something.
0: yeah you've got his back essentially is what we're talking about you've got your hooks in no matter what he does like you're able to kind of respond and you're constantly threatening with that choke or in this case you're constantly threatening to put your nose out in front and shoot him yeah. but in order to shoot him you do have to leave that control zone and point at the guy you're always actually pointing slightly behind we talk about fly to the elbow to shoot the wrist if you're on his, control, on his turn circle, you're not actually pointing at him. You're pointing slightly behind him as you fly the same circle around. And then you're looking for those opportunities where he's stable to cut across, shoot him, and then get back. Um, but in order to do that, you need to turn into that fight. You can't fly away from the fight. And that's rule number six. Rule number seven is when over the enemy's lines, never forget your own line of retreat. And this is one that I think is incredibly important and in that we're probably not as good at realistically in our like training engagements. We always assume that there is we have a clear path out and like um you know, if we're fighting today and we're in some sort of like defensive counter air type of training scenario and we run out of gas, we just go okay, see you later, like I'm going home. I'm bingo. Realistically, that would be a problem.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to disagree with you there a little bit. I think that this exact dicta comes up when we fight offensive counter-air. Uh, specific, so when I'm talking about offensive counter-air, I'm talking about uh, a situation where we as air-to-air fighters would kind of knock down the door, we're going into a contested environment, and we're escorting somebody who's going to be dropping some bombs on something so we are clearing out the air picture for them so that they can get in and drop their bombs and leave. And I think often where we end up focusing the debrief in offensive counter air is in bad decisions on the egress.
0: That's true. Which is getting home. That's true. But it's usually targeting decisions. And what I'm trying to say is, how often have you been doing a, like offensive counter air sim and then they just like, hit the uh, fuel freeze button? And they go, yeah, you would have run out of gas, but let's just keep going. Do you know what I mean? Or you do a, a DCA sortie, and then someone's not very smart with their gas, and they have to go home early. Usually, that's just followed by a knock it off, and then we stop the war. In reality, if there were bandits still alive, obviously, like, well, one, dude, you now have no gas and no ability to maneuver as there are still bandits trying to kill you. That's a serious problem. And, like, two, obviously, whatever your defended asset was is now not a defended asset. It's just an asset that's about to get bombed. So I'm just saying I think that, like, there are training-isms that when we got to war, it would be – we'd have to think about this a lot more. Agreed. To an extent. Like, I'm sure we would solve that problem, and there's, like, all different types of flows, and there'd be people in the bullpen who could relieve you. But um, because of – no one's going to push their gas in a training scenario and in, potentially run a jet out of gas. It's not something we run into as often. But when, you know, Bolka writes about this stuff and other people, it was a real issue. They didn't burn gas as fast as like a jet, obviously. But there were times when guys had to figure out a smart way to break away from an engagement to go home because they didn't have gas. Or on the flip side of things, like the Germans had a big advantage if the fights were over Germany or over the German side because they were just like, Okay, see you later. I can break away and just land this field. you know. So whoever, wherever the fight was taking place, those individuals had a big advantage. And as the war went on, because of the material advantage over the, uh, the Germans, the Germans typically pulled their planes back to their lines, and the fights happened more and more over the German lines, which was an advantage for the Germans fuel-wise. And the wind was also blowing that way. And the right? wind was blowing that way. And there are examples like Leno Hawker Squadron... They started flying this plane, we'll talk about it more, uh, DH-2, not very fast. In the flight in the wintertime, you go into an 80-knot headwind, you're going 90 knots. Sometimes they struggle just to get over the lines because they're only moving 10 knots towards the lines once they got blown uh, east. But anyways, that's an interesting one, but it's still applicable. And what's crazy is this guy wrote all these in 1916, and they still all apply today in one form or another because they are so fundamental. And then lastly, and this was the, the one that sadly was not followed and led to the death of Oswald Bolka, is for the Staffel or the squadron, attack on principle in groups of four or six. When the fight breaks up into a series of single combats, take care that several do not go for the same opponent. So the basic fighting element right now of, a, of the F-15C is a four-ship. So the fact that he just called that is pretty remarkable. So you have a flight lead, you would have number three, so you have one, two, three, and four. One and three are both flight leads. Three has is like semi-autonomous under the will of one and then two and four are your wingmen. Um, but the idea of when the fight breaks up in a series of single combats, take care that several do not go to the same opponent. This is what happened when they met, I think it was actually RFC 24, if I'm not mistaken, which was the No Hawker Squadron, Rick Toven goes for one British guy, and then Bolka and Erwin uh, Baum go for the same one unknowingly. When they try to avoid a collision, they collide with each other. They try to avoid a collision with the British guy. They collide with each other, and um, Oswald Bolka is killed. This is something that we talk about a lot when we do what we call air combat maneuvering or a 2v1 scenario, and it is difficult. And I can't imagine what it used to be like when there were no radios. Uh, you you were talking, Mr. Jell, last time about like engaged support comm. <clears throat> what that means is one guy's always the dedicated person attacking. That's the engaged fighter. The support fighter is the one who has to clear his flight path away from both the engaged fighter and the bandit. And it's very dynamic and it can switch very, very quickly. And you have to be thinking this is three dimensional. It can be almost impossible to see everyone at the same time. So,
1: yeah. And that's the support fighter. I mean, that's that's a, it's a tough role because you have to simultaneously put your jet, which is always moving, hopefully around 400 knots at this point uh, in a place in the sky where you are able to, get in there and employ weapons if you have an opportunity at any given time but also you want to be in a spot where you are deconflicted from the fight in terms of you are not going to have a, a mid-air collision with either the bandit or with your flight lead
0: yeah in some ways it's more, it's more difficult than the engage fighter right because the engage fighter you're just kind of fighting bfm your are dogfighting which you're kind of used to at this point the support fighter you're you're fighting smart bfm and it's not like that bandit can't just point right at you and start fighting you. He does quite often switch between the two bluer fighters.
1: Yeah, and especially as we get into more advanced threats with like very high off-board sight weapons. Just because somebody isn't pointing directly at you doesn't mean that they can't shoot you.
0: Exactly. So you have to be worried about him killing you kind of like the whole time while you're trying not to literally run in. Like this is a real life thing that we, we talk about from a safety perspective because it is so easy to put jets together and potentially have a mid-air collision in training. And there have been mid-air collisions in training, a lot of them in this phase of flight, because you're putting three jets in the same piece of sky. And unfortunately, this is, you know, like I said last time, this is the rule that's written in the blood of Dick, of uh, Oswald Bulka. But as Oswald Bulka could only come up with his eight Dicta, and I don't want to say only, um, he came up with the first eight Dicta. Yeah, Today, how many Dicta have you
1: come up with brass? Uh, there's
0: not many Dicta brasses yet. Um, But maybe I'll work on it. Uh, I feel like this could be a section of roll call. (laughs) The Dick Debrassa? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that should be. Um, I basically had uh, that section already. I just had to rename it. I got a lot of problems with you people. Uh, Anyways, so he came up with his eight. Today, we have basically hundreds of rules that we have to follow as fighter pilots. And it's written out on hundreds of pages, depending on the actual scenario. So the studying is quite a bit. Like, as a fighter pilot, you should be hypothetically flying, briefing, debriefing or studying in reality when there's a lot of queep jobs we're not going to get into that now but the point is you have a brief let's you know tying this whole thing together you have a brief you basically will brief something like in detail for an hour then you go through a flight and you're going to be doing these types of things that he wrote down in a more modern sense and then you're going to come back and you're going to debrief and then of the three of those the debrief is usually far and away the longest portion of this and there's a very strict process we go through. And as F-15C pilots, as Eagle drivers, as we like to call ourselves, we're kind of the keepers of the debrief. And we pride ourselves in almost a masochistic like, process of debriefing that can sometimes be 12 hours long for a flight that might have been an hour and a half long. And so big picture, what you're doing is you, you briefed all this stuff. In the brief, and then you're going to go through all of that kind of in minute detail of how it was executed, and there might have been things that weren't even brief that are in the three dash one in our book of tactics, and if that was touched on, you're also going to go through all of that in minute detail of how it was executed, and so we have all these somewhat advanced systems that track exactly where the airplanes were, so you can see how this whole thing played out. You have recordings of all your screens. Yeah, there's even recordings of where you're looking, so I can literally see. Like where this new wingman was looking physically, and so it's there's no hiding in a debrief. There's also no rank in a debrief, which is funny. It's uh, something I think it, I know Hawker wrote about it, but he's like, "Hey, there's no rank here," because uh, he is the Hawker was basically the English version of Bolka. They're actually fighting across the lines at the same time, and Bolka gets credit because he wrote a thing down. Hawker didn't come up with a book of tactics, but he was still kind of briefing and debriefing his guys, <clears throat> and. As far as the process, what you're working towards as you're getting through like your upgrades, you go from kind of a wingman, then you can lead one other guy uh, as a two-ship flight lead, then you can lead a few other guys as a four-ship flight lead, then you kind of work to be an instructor. And as an instructor, you're trying to actually, you know, obviously get the other guys better. And that all starts with the debrief loop is what we call it. And I think that if we were going to take a couple like Eagle IPs and put them somewhere in like business or you throw them on a football team as like an, a, a consultant. What they could offer really is the debrief loop. And this is a a process of how to systematically get better at something. And so the, the loop is you want to be taking a look at something you did, like if you were a consultant, if a football team calls you and you would look at the tape of you know your last game and you would go, let's identify an error, right? Um, and this could be on a play, like if you were debriefing a quarterback or something, or it could be over the course of a game from play calling and that sort of thing like why did what hasn't happened that we wanted to happen? So you would identify an error is step one. The next step is you have to prove that error actually occurred because you could be wrong. So you're always kind of asking yourself this too. So you have to prove an error occurred. In an air to air sense, if you got gunned, an error just happened, right? Something went wrong where a bandit got into your control zone and then went across and gunned you. So that that's easy to prove. Sometimes they're not as easy to prove. The yeah, sort- well,
1: I mean, but most of the time when you get gunned, you got to work your way back a little bit. It's probably not just the getting gunned that's the error, right? Well, that's
0: the interesting thing. So I was going to say, from in, in like the larger sorties, you're not just debriefing every little minute detail with no central focus. There's always what's called a DFP or debrief focal point. And this is you're trying to identify the most important thing that went wrong, essentially, and like caused you not to have mission success. You always tie it back to what your your objective was. And you're the picking of the DFP and the framing of the DFP is like in art form.
1: Yeah, So it's 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 focusing on the errors that eventually end up contributing to what you're identifying as the major thing that went wrong in this mission. Yeah,
0: I think I was thinking of like a good way to bring this like to a topical thing that people like to discuss. And this is the natural thing. Once you become an IP, you start doing this with a lot of things and you're not very fun at dinner parties. But the I I think a good example would be people. There's a problem with student loan debt today, right? Everyone has all these student loan debts. So if you wanted, you could focus on like, how do we get rid of student loan debt? But in my opinion, that's the wrong DFP. The DFP is why are, why did schools get so expensive, right? Like you have to find the level of where, or you want to find the most important thing to like fix the whole problem if you can, where if I can roll this back to the appropriate scale or the appropriate point, what was the point where the, you could call it where the train went off the tracks or where the most egregious error was made to put you in that predicament. You know, what was the root cause? What was the root cause? Exactly. And we always put a big arrow. Hey, I think this was the root cause of what happened. And so like, in my opinion, whatever your solution is, you got to go like with student loans. If you were just to try to attack the fact that people were in debt and you didn't solve the problem of the fact that schools are so expensive, then you're not really fixing the problem because that next wave of students is still going to have the student debt. Right. If you don't solve it at the correct uh, source. And so that is a, that's a little bit of the art of that debrief but to kind of like continue on and and to recap there so you would come up with a, a dfp but then with all the little individual things that happened that were wrong you need to i you need to identify the error prove the error occurred which can be difficult and sometimes you think you identified an error and then you can't prove it well maybe it's your perception which gets into the next point which is if you can prove the error occurred You have to find out why it happened, and usually there's a Socratic method here, and what you're going through is a very deliberate process of, let's say, I think Mr. Chow made an error. I'm going to ask questions in terms of his perception of what he saw in the moment, in the jet, if he can put himself back there, because debrief essay is invalid. I want to know what he was thinking at the time. And what he was feeling at the time. So, like, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel from the jet? Was the jet shaking? Was it smooth? Was there a light buffet, et cetera? And then, what were you thinking when you saw and felt all of that? So, like, what was your decision that you made?
1: Well, and and then, but before you, I mean, before I move on to decision, I like to validate was that perception correct? That's right. Because you can stop right there in some cases if you find that oh my my perception was that i was max performing the jet i was turning it as hard as i could and you can look at the tape sometimes and you can prove to somebody that no actually there was more to give and if uh you were more perceptive then you would if you change your perception here a little bit you would realize that uh you are are working with kind of incorrect information. And so any, any decision you make from there is potentially going to be flawed if you're working with a flawed perception.
0: And this is a huge one, actually. When we get into the larger sorties, right, there could be, especially if you talk about like an LFE, a large force exercise, there could be 20 blue air jets and 60 red air jets. Everyone's talking on the radio at the same time. There are hits all over your scope and you might go, there might be a really important radio call. And I'm like, did you hear that? And if the answer is no, and I'm telling you to target someone, like, boom, right there, your perception is off. Or what happens in like some of the smaller sorties, maybe you think you killed a bandit, but you didn't, and there's actually four bandits behind you, and there's only, and you thought there was three, something like that. Like, obviously, if you're going into that, that's going to affect your decision making and then for your execution. So you always start with perception. Thanks for pointing out, yeah, you always want to make sure it's correct. Okay, if your perception was correct, what did you what did you decide to do with that information? Okay. Was that the correct? decision? Was that the correct decision? Um, And then you typically want to, I think as you refine this, you want to get into more perception problems and decision problems. Uh, Not to say that the next step, which is execution, you can't solve, but those typically tend to be easier, easier problems to solve. We really want to be affecting people's decision-making. You want to get them to be better at making decisions and at perceiving all available information.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of, uh, i kind of wind it back to perception a little bit here too. There are so many stimuli, especially in a in these larger missions in a fighter aircraft, that part of the real skill here is understanding what to pay attention to at any given time. Where should your eyes be going? What should your cross-check be? at each phase of prosecuting an attack, uh, you know, and, and that is a skill in and of itself so that you have the best possible perception that you could at any given time.
0: Yeah. And it's when you start flying like a Cessna 172, you have to work on a cross check. I have checked my altitude, my airspeed, my heading. Oh, was that a radio call for me? etc. Right. And we talk about taking snapshots, just snapshots in time, if I'm going to look at my radar scope for two seconds, I'm going to look at my situational scope for two seconds. I'm going to look at my HUD for two seconds. Oh, I'm in formation. I'm going to look at my formation member for two seconds. Oh, yada, yada, yada. You're taking those snapshots real quick to process the information. And something that I've been working on lately and trying to pass off is there's this idea of clumping together or grouping together data to get quicker perceptions. Like a if someone's really good at chess and they can like – Turn their back and tell you exactly, you know, what all the positions on the board are. They're not memorizing, I have a pawn on e4, and then I have my knight on, you know, g2, whatever. They are grouping things together via their relationships. And so, for example, I've been trying to, rather than look at my exact data of how far away one bandit is, I'm trying to like zoom my eyes out to look at the scope and go like okay that's about this many miles I have this many bandits at about that many miles and then I can fine tune it but always trying to catch the forest before I look at the trees do you know what I'm saying yeah and the relationship of the forest and I think that the guys who are really good with their perceptions and are like some of the best decision makers I think are are just the guys who are perceiving the world faster and I think the better you get at seeing the relationships it doesn't matter if it's X miles or X miles plus one the relationship matters, right? Are you on axis? Are you in a good position to shoot him?
1: Are you at like a certain range? Um, yeah, I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that you remember that there was one guy at 40,000, two guys at 30,000, and one guy at 10,000. What, what's important to remember is that there's like, hey, there's three guys that I kind of care about that are high, and then there's one guy low somewhere. Yeah,
0: there's like a three-group champagne here, and this is, the mo- this is the priority group. That's what I care about right now, and I need to solve that. So... Again, let's. We've been talking a lot. Let's tie this together. So you, um, Mr. Chow, is a lovely. Uh, she's four month old now. She's four months. I think that is actually your son upstairs. That I. Oh with. no, you're right. That's absolutely my yeah. son. That's Oswald Borka. Uh, excuse me, Oswald Borka. Um, he just got here. He's a little louder. Um, <laughs> anyways this together, you identify the error, you prove the error, and then the perception, decision, execution is the meat of this thing. And I, th- well, it is. Again, we talk about an art. You are trying to draw that out of somebody without making assumptions is the, is an important part of that. So it's a Socratic method. It's asking questions. You don't want them to be leading questions. You don't it's want to lead. very
1: easy to jump to conclusions here. It's very easy.
0: I find if I am trying to rush through something which I've never done before, but if I am trying to like kind of get through it on a Friday afternoon. That's my, that's the thing I have to watch out for myself of like, I kind of, I think I know why you made the error and I might go down that path and sometimes I have to back off and go, wait, no, nope. let me see what this person actually thought about. Maybe there was a snake in the plane and that's why they weren't paying attention. Um, but once you figure that out and you usually like to highlight, Hey, this was a perception type of error. You come up with an instructional fix. And your instructional fix should always match the type of error that you found. So if you found someone wasn't seeing something correctly, don't tell them that you want to pull to the modern buffet just shy of the wing rock. That's an execution fix. You always want to pair the instructional fix that you have to the type of error that occurred. And the more it's like the instructional fix, I've been saying this about everything. It's an art. It is an art because you want to make it very specific but somehow universally applicable to the next situation they find themselves in. that's very
1: similar, right? But you don't want it to be, you can't write do better, hear better. Yeah. But it might be see better. When you're trying to determine if the bandit is going to be able to gun you or not, you should turn your head around, maybe your whole body around in the jet, and you should look at the bandit versus if they were looking forward and not looking at the bandit. That's a simple one. Yeah. And simple perception, but course. to like, to be
0: specific, you can be like, Hey, I want you to, you can use the handles. You can use the canopy. Sometimes you're pushing off the glass of the cockpit. I want you to like loosen the straps up to make sure you have enough. That's probably not a great safety one, but everyone does it. You loosen up your seat kit straps. So you have the movement in your hips to actually turn. And then, you know, you talk to the optimizing the human we- weapon system person after to fix your neck, but, but you have to do it right. Uh, but you're right. Um, that's the type of instructional fix. And then the last part of this is impact. So if you had done it correctly, what would have happened? In the, you know, the probably overly simplistic example of getting gunned, you would have saw the guy leaving the control zone to execute a gun attack and you could have jinked out of the way, right? If you had saw him. Um, and I say that this is something that we could apply to other things. In my mind went to football, I've got a couple of family members who are football coaches and like My mind goes there quite often, but like, let's say that you are debriefing a quarterback and he throws an interception. Well, okay, we've identified an error. And I think the fact that he threw an interception probably proves the error pretty quickly. But when you get to like perception, decision, execution, did he throw that error because he didn't see the guy? Well, what did you see? Well, maybe you have to move out of the pocket to see him if you're not seeing the middle linebacker or something or be taller, Kyler Murray, you know what I'm saying? You have to find out why it happened. Maybe he saw him, but he misread the defense. Maybe he thought it was cover two, It's cover three. He thought the linebacker was dropping in, but he dropped out, whatever. Like, you pick his brain and go, okay, why? Or maybe he saw everything perfect, and he just made a bad decision. Dude, don't force the ball into there. Or maybe it was just a bad throw. Maybe it was a bad throw. And that's what I'm saying. Like, if you don't understand that, you don't understand how to fix the problem. But once you get him to, like, hopefully a professional quarterback has decent mechanics and he's working that already. That's why I say execution is usually the lowest hanging fruit. But if you can get him to understand, like, from a, a game time situational perception of, like, or decision-making ability of, hey, maybe you force the ball on fourth down, but not when we're up seven with two minutes to go, you know, and then you can also work on the leading defenses and seeing how everything develops. That's his perception side of things, right? And so that's why I say this is something we could take outside of the pure flying environment and apply it to other things. That I think is pretty interesting.
1: And I like what you said earlier about the, how the fix that you're giving someone has to be both specific to their, to the error that was made. And it also has to be universal. Um, and and I want to talk about the, the universality here a little bit, because um, I think that in, in daily life, it's very easy to misunderstand something that happened and kind of equivalent the quality of decision with the quality of results. Right? Yeah. So you you made a bad decision, but you got lucky.
0: Correct. Or,
1: or you made the right decision, but you got unlucky. You have to go back to what was the information that you had at the time? Uh, Was there a way to have more imperfect, or more perfect information. So a, a better perception. If not, then you don't want to learn a negative lesson there and just say, Oh, I'm going to do something different the next time. Oh, like my, my lesson is, uh, I'm never going to trust anybody that on Facebook marketplace ever again. Right. <laughs> uh, if you get scammed, right. Like maybe, maybe that's a good lesson, but, but maybe not, maybe that's not yeah. really going to help you in the long run. And so you, I think it's, it's really important to take a deep dive into what actually happened and this kind of goes back to identifying the error, improving the error. Um, and I, I think that that has a lot of applicability for everyday life as well.
0: Yeah, so I think you can see why uh, Eagle debrief of TI, you might start the brief at 6 Ta- a... Tactical intercepts. Tactical intercepts. You might start the brief at 6 a.m. and you leave at 1 a.m. the following morning because you're just diving into everything you know, with this type of method. And it, it, it can be labor intensive and there is something for time of useful consciousness. Like how much can you learn in a day when it's midnight and you've already been going over this, but we try to debrief to perfection. That is how you get better. And like in order to do that, you can't skip steps because you're going to come up, you're going to ID the wrong error. You know, you're not going to find the right, why it happened. If you don't ask the right questions, you're going to provide a bad fix. You know, or you're focusing the whole debrief on the wrong point. Like sometimes things go wrong, but you had good execution. And like, you know what? Shit, this Red Air didn't die because we apply probability. You know um, what I mean? Blame so, blame Raytheon. So blame Raytheon. Kona, you know, messed it up. He had a, uh, you know, you had a Red Air bandit who was trying to be Red Air hero for the day. That doesn't happen that often. And there's probably something you can do. But like those things can suck you down. Rabbit holes You don't necessarily want to go to. And like you said, you don't want to walk away with the wrong learning, which is why focusing the debrief on the right point is also so important. Um, I will say real quick, these techniques don't work with your family members or they might work, but there's an emotional element that uh, you have to take into account. Basically, I wouldn't try debriefing your spouse on a lot of things. If you guys are listening and thinking, yeah, I can finally get them to stop doing X, Y, or Z. That doesn't work. That, uh, that's going to get you I think you, I think you can
1: use it occasionally. If they're in the
0: right state of mind, maybe. I wouldn't do it in the heat of an argument. No. Uh, that never works. I've debriefed myself yeah. on that, actually. Perception, decision, execution. Why did I think this was a good idea? Yep. What was I hearing?
1: Was yep. I feeling the what, tiny little... What was little the information f- available to me when I made this decision? Was
0: I feeling the tiny little fists of rage from my wife hitting me? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, she doesn't really beat me, but... Uh, yeah, there is this um, tendency, like I said, with the time thing to try and take all these lessons learned from yeah, kind of the fodder pilot culture and apply them to everyday life. Sometimes they're very applicable. Sometimes it's like that stoic quote, kind of <laughs> understand, like have the courage to change the things that you can change, um, to accept the things that you can't and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm trying to do that right now. That's the goal. Uh, And this is one of those where sometimes you got to take these tools, very powerful tools, and put them back in your pocket.
1: (laughs) Caleb gets it. My son Oswald gets it. Yeah. If you can hear some faint screaming, that is uh, a one year old version of Brass. Yeah. He's practicing his podcasting right now. Um,
0: His version is a lot of screaming. Um, I guess my version is similar. Um, he's a little bit well more well spoken than I am. But uh, if you guys uh, are liking the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Um, up in our next episode, we are going to be covering Leno Hawker, who is not only the guy with the coolest name so far, he's also the English version of Oswald Bulka. And it's my son saying, See you next time on Fight History.
1: Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com.